For this morning's study, I'd like to start with the book of Habakkuk, the last chapter, starting at verse 16. It's so good everybody has a Bible and is looking at the Word of God. This is a good thing. So in the book of Habakkuk, we have talked about before, he is asking the Lord, how can he stand all the evilness in the world? How can he stand what is going on watching from heaven? And um, he's asking the Lord to make some sort of justice, do his just thing. But in the last chapter, he... um, is, it's set supposedly like a psalm. And so from verse 16 it says, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled where I stood. Now I must wait quietly for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig trees do not bud and there is no fruit on the vine, though the olive crops fail and the Fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh is my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain high. So Habakkuk is rejoicing in the fact that no matter what happens, God is with us. And so as we look at the world around us today, even on the outside of what we consider our faith life, it has to be that way, doesn't it? It has to be that we look around and we see what's going on in the world and we tremble and we quake sometimes at, the, at what's, what is out there and what is so evil. But how does God answer us and what does God do for us? How has he been there for us, if you will? So we'll find out if we um, have the blessing of God in, in this further in this study. So let's go to uh, the Colossians, the book of Colossians, the very first chapter. So so Paul writes three epistles while he's in prison in Rome. He writes the Ephesians, he writes to the Galatians, and he writes this this letter to the people at Colossae. Now the location of Colossae is somewhere where near Laosadia, but it isn't it isn't um, available or it isn't present today and it's it's actually buried under the ground uh, like a lot of those ancient cities are. And so there is no people literally living in Colossae. But Paul writes this letter to them, and he is encouraging them because he's heard through his ministers, if you will, the people that have been uh, working with Paul and helping Paul spread the gospel, even though Paul is in prison. So it starts out in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossia, who are faithful brothers, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father. So as Paul is writing to this, what is he including them in the kingdom of God? But the interesting thing is here is that Paul calls himself an apostle. An apostle is one who has been actually called by Jesus. So the 12 men that were called that are apostles, Paul is included in that. And how is he included in that? Because on the road to Damascus, Jesus calls him. So he is an apostle. He does have the same connotation as John and Peter and the rest of the apostles. So what is he doing? He's saying that, he's also saying that Timothy is a brother to him, so he considers Timothy more than just a minister. He considers Timothy as also an apostle, as he has been called by Jesus. But he's writing to the saints, and who are the saints? Do you know that you and I are saints? Do you know that when you have opened your heart up and accepted Jesus as your Savior and had your sins forgiven, that you are a saint? I remember having a discussion with uh, a young person years ago, and they were, they were troubled by the fact that they were so sinful and they were so bothered by their sin as a young person. So by God's will, by the Holy Spirit, we were able to find this this passage in Colossians that said, to the saints in Christ in Colossae who are faithful brothers. Paul writes in other passages also in his writings about the saints. And what he's talking about is the believers, the ones who have become sanctified in the blood of Jesus Christ. So we always thank God, verse 3, we always thank God for the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Again, the word saints, because they are all believers, the ones that are with them. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of the truth of the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. You learned from Ephaphras, our dearly beloved fellow slave, he is a faithful servant of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. So Paul is talking about those people and saying that he knows because he has heard the message back from those who have been actually with the people in, in uh, Colossae. And he has been informed, if you will, of, the, of their faithfulness to the gospel, to the word of Jesus, to the sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit does through the preaching of the gospel and the understanding of the doctrine of God. So with this, Paul is commending them and then he goes on further in verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we've heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. 
This is what we pray. If we'd have a conversation about anybody who was able to stand up and talk through the, to you folk as a, as a minister, we would say the same thing. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's my prayer for you who are sitting, listening. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. So what is this bearing fruit? So we come from an environment where we think that there's no way that we, I mean, I'm speaking personally in this matter. I, I felt for years that there's no way that I would be worthy enough to be even get into the back door. That God was too demanding. That there was no way that I was ever going to make it. That the truth was, is that I was too sinful. That the truth was that in myself I was not able to even take this amazing grace and actually believe it for more than the communion Sunday. But through this studying of the word and understanding that I may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. And that's what we're doing. That's what you and I are doing today and whatever, whenever we pick up the Bible to look at Scripture. We're growing in the truth and we're walking in a way pleasing to Him. And in that way we bear fruit. And what is that fruit? We understand that as kind of an acronym, if you will, to the way that a tree bears fruit and it's good in its season and we enjoy it. And this fruit really is the way that we present ourselves to the world so that they see that we are walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So as we have heard in sermons in the past, when we do this, we are joyful. We are downtrodden. We aren't feeling unworthy of the fact that even though we have this flesh that we drag with us, that when we hear the word of God through the gospel and we have our sins forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ, we're joyful because even God will accept us who are that unworthy. And when we get to that point, we walk beyond the cross because of the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're able to, instead of crawling to the cross, begging for more forgiveness, we're able to walk past that and know that we are sinners, but that the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And when we ask, when we realize that we've sinned, we ask for forgiveness. And we don't have to crawl back to the cross. <clears throat> Giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints, inheritance in the light. This inheritance in the light is the light of the Holy Spirit talking to us through this word. When we hear the word of God and it comes into our hearts and we're able to put it into perspective fully, we are joyful. We understand. We are happy. 
He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. So this redemption process that takes place when we hear, see, we have to hear the Word of God first. We have to hear of the saving grace of, the, of our Father through Jesus Christ first. Even though, it's, even though we know that in order to get into heaven, you have to, you have to do something. And how, you, how do you get there? But in our sinfulness, we figure that we can't get there. So he meets us prior to that. He meets us in a way that we begin, begin to understand that there is work that's already done. That work that we have to begin to understand. And then we take on the understanding of the work of Jesus Christ to make us acceptable also. That's redemption. We get the forgiveness of our sins. After we have this redemption, we become sanctified. We keep learning. We keep growing in grace and mercy. Because without this grace and mercy that God has shown us in our own sinfulness, how are we ever able to show it to anyone else? How are we ever be able to be merciful and show mercy to, to anyone who's wronged us. So how does this happen? It's the centrality of Christ. 15, in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. When we understand this, we can go back and look at Habakkuk when he gets to the point of his total worry and frustration about how they are overthrowing the folk, killing and maiming and, and taking their property. And he's asking God, how can you stand this unjustness? For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. This is the hard thing for us to begin to understand, too. When we look at our society around us, we have to say that, where is God in all this? Why hasn't God come and why hasn't he straightened this all out? But we, we forget that God is 100,000 feet up in the air, looking down at the world, seeing the whole Alpha and the Omega, knowing what his plan is. And we are like a grain of sand on the ocean shore in terms of our time compared to God. So it's difficult for us to, to understand and to put into perspective how God is able to stand all this because there is something coming out of this evilness that we see that is going to be great and glorious and is going to be good because Jesus is coming back. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
so that he might come to have the first place in everything. Think about that for a minute. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I think we should concentrate on this. If, if you would think that you'd have to praise him, you'd have to re be rejoicing in the fact that this is where our God is at, really. So we do think in a minuscule way. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why is he the firstborn from the dead? Because he is the first person to raise up from the dead. By the will of our Heavenly Father, through his work, through Jesus, the work on the cross where he shed his blood and gave his body for us, those yet unreconciled to him through our unbelief. So that he might come to have the first place in everything. So that when we understand who he is, we do have. We're with him. We walk with him. We can see all of this. And even though we can be troubled by what's around us in our, in our spiritual, and not in our spiritual way, but our material way, we're able to put into perspective what God is and what God is doing. I mean, how did God actually feel when those people in the wilderness that he had taken out of Egypt and led through the Red Sea that were his chosen people said, where is this God? Why is he so far off? And every time he wanted to talk to the people, the people said, don't talk to us, talk to Moses. And when Moses went up on the hill to get the commandments, he comes down after talking to God and his face is shining bright as the sun and they said, we don't want to see you that way. You're too close to God. This is our humanness. This is how we are as human beings. It's too magnificent. It's too beyond our comprehension. The magnificent glory of this God. So what does he do, this glorious God? He puts himself in a person. He walks on the earth. He is hated and mistreated and unloved and unlistened to by the majority of the world. Why? They were too righteous in their own way. They already had something. They had themselves. They didn't have this magnificent glory of God. So once we were alienated and hostile in our minds because of our evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by the physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him, the Father, God, on judgment. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Collectively, we all have become servants of it. Collectively, when you have the word of God with you, 
you are a servant of the Most High God. And you should not be afraid to talk about this. And if you can't talk about it, ask for help from, through prayer. God will give you words. He will help you. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. And this is where I have to rest. This is where I have to come back. This is one of my favorite epistles in the Bible, this Colossians. Because this is the work of Jesus Christ. This is the work of what God did for you and me. In that, we can rest assured forever. Because in that, we have holiness, the holiness of Jesus Christ. And we are able to be forgiven regardless of what, we've, what has happened in the past. Regardless of how we are, whether we are uh, physically uh, beautiful or whether we are physically ugly. Because the Word of God and the Holy Spirit make us beautiful. And that's how He sees us. Why? Because we are His creation. First of all, in the physical. But most importantly, of the spiritual. In this resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to close this off today, I'd like to read a, a short essay by A.W. Tozer. And the name of this essay is called, God is Easy to Live With. Satan's first attack upon the human race was his sly effort to destroy Eve's confidence in the kindness of God. Unfortunately for her and for us, he succeeded too well. From that day, men have had a false conception of God. And it is exactly this that has cut us out from under the ground of righteousness and has driven them to reckless and destructive living. Nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. Certain sects, such as the Pharisees, while they held that God was stern and austere, managed to maintain a fairly high level of external morality. But their righteousness was only outward. Inwardly, they were white sepulchers, as our Lord himself told them. Their wrong conception of God resulted in a wrong idea of worship. To a Pharisee, the service of God was a bondage, which he did not love, but from what he could not escape without loss too great to bear. The God of the Pharisee was not an easy God to live with, so his religion became grim and hard and loveless. It had to be so, for our notion of God must always determine the quality of our religion. Most Christianity since the days of Christ's flesh has also been grim and severe, and the cause has been the same, an unworthy or an inadequate view of God. Instinctively, we try to be like our God, and if he is conceived to be stern and exacting, so we will see ourselves be. From a failure to properly understand God comes the world of unhappiness. Among good Christians, even today, the Christian life is thought to be glum and unrelived, cross-carrying under the eye of a stern father who expects much and excuses nothing. He is austere, peevish. He is highly temperamental and extremely hard to please. 
The kind of life which springs out of such libelous notions must of necessity be but a parity on the truth life in Christ. It is most important to our spiritual welfare that we hold in our minds always a right conception of God. If we think of him as cold and exacting, we shall find it impossible to love him, and our lives will be ridden with servile fear. If again we hold him to be kind and understanding, our whole inner life will be a mirror of that idea. The truth is that God is the most winsome of all beings, and his service is one of unspeakable pleasure. He is all love, and those who trust in him need never know anything but that love. He is just indeed. He will not condone sin, but through the blood of the everlasting covenant, he is able to act toward us exactly as if we had never sinned. Toward the trusting sons of man, his mercy will always triumph over justice. Fellowship with God is delightful beyond all telling. He communes his redeemed ones in an easy, uninhibited fellowship that is restful and healing to the soul. He is not sensitive, nor selfish, nor temperamental. What he is today, we shall find him tomorrow, and the next day, and the next year. It is not hard to please, though he may be hard to satisfy. He expects of us only he himself has first supplied. He is quick to mark every simple effort to please him, and just as quick to overlook imperfection when he knows we meant to do his will. He loves us for ourselves and, our, and values our love more than galaxies of newly created worlds. Unfortunately, many Christians cannot get free from their perverted notions of God, and these notions poison their hearts and destroy their inward freedom. Those friends serve God grimly, as an elder brother did, or as the elder brother did, when what is right without enthusiasm and without joy, and seemed altogether unable to understand the buoyant, spirited celebration when the prodigal comes home. Their idea of God rules out the possibility of his, his being happy in his people, and they attribute the singing and shouting to sheer fanaticism. Unhappy souls, these, doomed to go heavy into their melancholy way, grimly determined to do right, even if heavens fall, to be in the winning side of the day of judgment. How good it would be if we could learn that God is easy to live with. He remembers our frame, and he knows that we are dust. He may sometimes chasten us, it is true, but even this he does with a smile the proud, tender smile of a father who is bursting with pleasure over the imperfect but promising son who is becoming every day to look more and more like the one child he is. Some of us religiously jumpy and self-conscious because we know that God sees our every thought and is acquainted with our ways, we need not be. God is a sum of all patience and the es essence of kindly goodwill. We will please him most, not by frantically trying to make ourselves good, but by throwing ourselves into the arms with his arms with all our imperfections and believing that he understands everything and still loves us. We can all go home rejoicing because God is easy to live with. 
and to praise him for his salvation. Because no matter how hard we have to pick ourselves up out of the dust in our sinfulness, he sees us through the eyes of Jesus. And he wants us. He loves us. And he's not mad at us. He never is mad at us. He's ready to forgive us for everything. So believe yet for a little while. He's coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with the benediction. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.